This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representer, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Now, Chris, I would like to start this episode off by notifying everyone, everyone in the audience today or whoever listens to this uh, podcast, I want to notify you that you may now start your celebration of of Christmas. And (laughs) I'd also like to loudly rebuke and condemn in every way all those who diluted the holiday, who showed a lack of discipline by celebrating Thanksgiving. I'm sorry, celebrating Christmas before Thanksgiving. So I want to let those of you who waited know that it's time as of last Friday, you can now celebrate Christmas. And I want to rebuke those. In no uncertain terms, I want to rebuke those who have already started celebrating. Now, Chris, you told us last week that you were doing kind of an alternative Thanksgiving menu. What ended up being on that menu? So I ended up not. Well, I guess it was a little bit alternative and a little bit traditional Uh, after a long two weeks of talking about how much I was not going to cook. I ended up cooking like a bunch of stuff. Uh, some of it was, was traditional sort of, uh, soul food stuff. I did, uh, still hook up, uh, some Asian stuff for people who were looking for that, but I cooked it at home still. Uh, so it turned out being different. I cooked for like 24 straight hours almost. Oh, so you came, you were capping on the last episode. You, you pump faked it. <laughs> I guess so, man. I don't know what came over me, but I, it, I went in a different direction. It happens. It happens, man. You know, I always have to say this, even though we know it's still football season in the Gibney household and on the Church Politics podcast. It's just been breaking my heart to see the struggles of uh, the, the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, as of right now, as I speak today, they have a losing record. Um, and you can just tell the team just frustrated. Their leader is elbowing people in the face, getting kicked out of games, uh, getting, or rather getting suspended, cursing all over television. You can just see a, a team that's really just falling apart, man. So I want to send some positive uh, uh, vibes over to all the the Lakers fans and all the stuff they're experiencing. Clearly not even the best uh, team or maybe not even the second best team in uh, the state. Uh, and so just keep keep them in mind. Keep all the Laker, Lakers fans in mind as you as you go on and get ready for this uh, basketball season. A- any thoughts on that, Chris? Hey, man, I guess I should be uh, noble and send positive vibes to Lakers fans. I'd rather just send like Bulls jerseys to Lakers fans. But, you know, I mean, Chris, you see all the signs of a team just completely falling apart. Uh, and, and you hate to see it. You know, you hate to see it. But. But hey, that, that's what you get sometimes, man. Uh, as uh, as usual, this episode is brought to you in part by our friends at the Fetzer Institute, uh, who are sponsoring uh, the Church Politics uh, podcast. We greatly appreciate them, and again, I can't wait to tell you guys. But we have some really good information coming about uh, coming from our partnership that you will find out probably at the beginning of the year. So stay tuned because it actually could involve you. We'll see. But we got a lot of stuff to get into, Chris. So as usual, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think. Not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. And I'll start with this. Chris, you know that the mission of Operation Warp Speed was to develop, manufacture and distribute the coronavirus vaccine. And the development component of that operation has been called one of the most remarkable achievements in 
the history of modern science or modern or modern medicine, I should say. The public-private partnership initiated by the Trump uh, administration and then continued by the Biden administration, it wasn't perfect, right? We, I think there's some complaints about the distribution and some other things that are fair, but it was impressive on many fronts and quite possibly the Trump administration's greatest achievement. And so even those of us who have a lot of criticism for the Trump administration, I think you need we all need to give them some uh, credit for the uh, uh, development of that vaccine. I was reading an article in the in the Wall Street Journal and a couple other articles, and they were talking about how they mobilized the best pharmaceutical and drug manufacturing companies in private industry in a way that was very much similar to how the uh, how the automotive and electrical companies were mobilized during World War II. Now, those companies were mobilized to create weapons. They hadn't done it before, but it was organized in such a way that they were able to do that efficiently. And you see a, a similar system going on here. Some other things that happened is the Defense of Production Act was used several times to prioritize materials and supplies for the operation and they sent government contracts for vaccine development to the head of the line to make sure that this could get done as quickly as possible. Uh, the vaccine, as you guys know, was created in the United States in record time. And that's even according to the Association of American uh, Medical Colleges. Uh, it happened much sooner than many experts expected it to happen. And that could have saved many, many lives. And so I do want to point out, take this time to point out, that success. Uh, I don't think it got enough attention because there were some things that people felt went wrong during distribution. And then you had all the political back and forth. Uh, you had the elections. I don't know that we focus enough in on this really big success of developing this uh, uh, vaccine that, you know, relatively speaking, is, is very effective. So you have that going on in the U.S., Chris. On the other hand, you have China and China's vaccine has been less effective uh, by most accounts uh, at, at preventing the spread of the virus, particularly in regard to new variants. Um, but yet and still, the Chinese government, through its vaccine diplomacy plan, so it's really been deliberate about this, uh, they've been sending their vaccines all over the world, including sending one billion doses to Africa. Now, again, unfortunately, the results have really been less than stellar. I think we could say that the results have been mixed at best, but that's okay. Because of course, America has come to the rescue and is freely sending the vaccine around the world to make sure that our neighbors are taken care of. Right, Chris? Wrong. American companies have actually refused to share the vaccine formula. This is something we need to think about. And this is something that we really need to as a country, talk about how this reflects our values and how we think of how we think of others, because while our ability to develop a more effective vaccine says a lot to me about what what's exceptional about the United States and about some of our industries and also what's exceptional about the role of public private partnerships and capitalism's actual ability to impact innovation. I think it says a lot about that. We're also seeing something very ugly in this situation. Ugly incentives, ugly priorities. You see, wealthier countries have been able to procure the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine at premium prices, while the poor global South, namely Africa, hasn't been given the same access to those shots simply because they can't afford it. U.S. companies have refused to share the vaccine formula despite calls from international health organizations to do so, despite the need to do so, despite a lot of despite even China and others doing it themselves. Instead, they've chosen to expand their own production, likely to protect their patents. They don't want to allow patent waivers, even though it might save lives in other places. Profits, dividends, cash money is at the heart of this decision. Now, I know I want to back up and, and, and recognize that our more libertarian listeners, and I know we have quite a few of those, might disagree with me on this. But I see this as a case of clear greed, the type of greed that the Bible rebu rebukes and condemns, the type of greed that would make you say, 
how, makes you ask, rather, how are we actually treating the least of these? Might I remind you that we are still in a pandemic? People around the world are still dying. And it seems to me that Big Pharma is mostly focused on the money bag. Now, Chris, I want to be clear. I don't have a problem with companies profiting from the innovations they invested in, even to some extent in this case. But again, we're in a crisis. In these extenuating circumstances, money shouldn't weigh so heavily in their decision. Not to mention billions of government funds went into this. $2.5 billion was given to Moderna alone to develop this vaccine, which means that the nature of the investment is different. These weren't just private funds being invested here. These were taxpayer funds for a public good that should be extended to our global neighbors. It's a different situation. Furthermore, some, like the co-chair of the, of the African Union's Vaccine Delivery Alliance, are saying that the unwillingness to share the vaccine formula with poor countries is at least partially responsible for these new variants coming out of the global south. So consequently, the greed isn't only hurting these poor countries and, and our poor neighbors, it may very well come back to hurt us again. Which, to be honest, our neighbors should be enough. But if that's not enough motivation, maybe we could think about how it could come back to hurt us, too. The co-chair of the alliance also said that this amounted to hoarding uh, to, to hoarding by big countries. She called it she called the failure to vaccinate equitably discrimination and said that things need to change right now. And oh, one one other thing before I get to Chris. Because of the Omicron variant, uh, stocks have actually fallen or they fell at least for a couple of days, except for in a few industries. And one of those industries is Big Pharma. Chris, what's your take on the vaccine and the resistance to sharing that vaccine formula with the Global South and others? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it is... Um I think it's dangerous. I think it's terrible. I think it's immoral. Um, you also got to go back. You know, you laid out a lot of the facts here, uh, and so I won't go back and rehearse uh, all of those. Um, but I also would highlight the fact that we saw in the campaign uh, before President Biden became President Biden a rhetorical commitment to making sure that, you know, upon the success of Project Warp Speed, that it was not just about vaccinating uh, inside of the United States, but also, you know, making sure that vaccines uh, reach the rest of the world. And so to me, this is yet another thing where we see backpedaling from some of the stuff that uh, made people, if not excited, at least prefer President Biden being in the White House. And so that is in and of itself troubling. Uh, as, as you said, the, this vaccine that these companies are resisting to share, one, you know, it's, it's not like they developed these vaccines on their own, right? Um, not only the 2.5 uh, that, that went into the Moderna vaccine uh, during Project Warp Speed. I mean, if you just look across a lot of the research and development that goes into medicines in general, uh, a lot of this stuff is getting done and supported in significant, significant ways through uh, government funding, which th that kind of public-private partnership to me is something that's good. It, it helps us, you know, accomplish some of these incredible feats. And I think that the uh, the profit incentive is helpful. I think that it helped uh, speed up the process because there was that motivation. And there are probably, as you said, people listening to this podcast who are, are probably a little bit more free market than I am in uh, 
in, in, in all my ways. Uh, I think that those public-private partnerships are good. I think that people should be able to make money. But the, the top three companies doing this vaccine in this year alone, Justin, have made $34 billion in profits. That's like $1,000 a second. And so these folks, these companies have made a lot of money uh, off of this vaccine. It's not like their investments have gone by the wayside or you'd be robbing them of the opportunity to make money off of this, this, this ingenuity and innovation uh, that they did indeed lead, albeit with financial support from the government. We've, they've made a lot of money. I mean, a whole lot of money. $1,000 a second is a lot of money. And so the greed factor comes in. It's also a very selfish thing to do, I think, and not even selfish because it, it, it harms us, right? Like these variants, we live in a global community now. And these variants, as long as the, the, the populations of the world don't have access to the vaccine, it's going to be more likely that these variants can be created. These muta- mutations happen. Uh, it begins to spread because folks are not vaccinated. It's always going to end up here. And it's always going to be some kind of disturbance to people's lives. Uh, And so we're not just talking about protecting our neighbor, which, as you said, should be enough. Uh, We're also talking about uh, protecting ourselves. Uh, And if if I can add one last thing that I think makes this even a little bit more sinister, you have to start to ask yourself the question, are these folks refusing to share the vaccine so that they can make even more money off of us? If you look back at you know, once the vaccine, like once the vaccine was first sort of in circulation, very early after it was first in circulation, you started seeing reporting about a couple of these companies, Pfizer, Moderna, talking to their shareholders and boards about the potential profits of boosters. Now we see the boosters coming, perhaps looking down the line, and there's no reporting, at least not that I know of right now, but perhaps now they're looking at not only increase profits off of boosters, but maybe they need to make modifications to the vaccination and people have to get more vaccines to vaccinate against the variants that are being created in these unvaccinated populations of the world. Um, Now, I'm, I'm not saying that I've seen any reporting that says that this is true, but when you look at a situation where it seems like the only item on the agenda for these companies is making, you know, more money than anybody can even think about what to do within their lifetime. You have to consider that maybe this is starting to factor in that they don't want to share the vaccine because in this sort of cycle of new variants, there are more opportunities to create boosters, to create new vaccine and make more money uh, off of the the governments that can't afford it. Uh, and so you keep part of the world sick, you keep the other part of the world paying, and you just keep making money off of that bad situation. And we shouldn't tolerate that. I mean, there are ways for our government to step in and and force these folks just to share the formula, right? Like um, in, in South Africa, they're trying to reverse engineer the formula. There, there are many countries of the world that don't necessarily need you know, the vaccine developed and delivered and, and that kind of stuff. They just need the formula. They've got labs. They've got scientists. They could develop it. They just need the formula. And we should be sharing that. We help pay for it. A lot of money's been made already, you know, and and I'm not against that. I mean, I, I think I am against the ridiculous $1,000 a second is a lot of money. But even if you're not against that, even if you say, you know, let them make all the money that they can, I mean, they've made a ton of money at this point. And sharing this vaccine is going is, is, is to make us a better global neighbor. Uh, it's also going to make us safer here in our own country. Um, it is what we said that we would do. Uh, and it's just the morally right thing to do. And I, I don't really understand, other than the point of greed, why we have not taken that step. Yeah, and I want to reiterate, this isn't that me and Chris are against capitalism. We said that we're, we're not against some of the incentives. We we realize some of the incentives that it creates and, and, and why it makes us innovative in a lot of ways. But I think we also have to recognize that capitalism isn't infallible, that this really is the ugly side of capitalism, which is capitalism without the right level of ethics to match it, uh, without 
something that guards us against this type of greed to where alarms go off when you even think about making money over making sure that we end a pandemic. Like you said before, it's not even necessarily about uh, having to send all this, you know, send all the all the vaccine down to other places and all that. They need the formula so they, they can reproduce it themselves. And I understand if this was the formula to or a recipe for some, you know, some chicken recipe or something like that, that you didn't want to give up. You hear me like you make your money off your chicken recipe. But guess what? This is a pandemic where people are dying. And the sad thing is when you get so focused on making money and so focused on the profit and what your the, the people that will run your company want and, and, and what the uh, the folks who hold interest in your company need. You can really blind yourself to what should be very obvious to most people who aren't that into uh, the money side of it. And so we just have to do better. You know, any type of tragedy can be very profitable for someone. That, that's always the case. But what should keep people from seeking to gouge and get profits in this way is your ethics, is your values as a country and what you represent. Now, I, I, I mentioned at the beginning of, of this, this part of the, the podcast that there may be some folks out there that listen to us that disagree. So this is what I want to do. If you disagree with what we're saying and you don't think that they should have to share the, the recipe, uh, the, the recipe, you don't think they have to share, should have to share the formula. If you hit us up, you can either you can, um, you know, hit us up on Twitter, hit us up on Instagram, send us a direct message or whatever. Tell make an argument for why they shouldn't have to give it up. If it's a good argument, I might even let you record a five, five minutes, give you five minutes to record that argument and we'll play it on the next episode. If you can make a good argument for why they should be able to keep those profits, even though this was government funded and we're dealing with a pandemic. I'm open to hear that because we're not running from arguments. We're not just trying to say, well, my ideology says this, so I'm going to stick by it. We're trying to find what's the best way to deal with a pandemic and to deal with the fact that the global South doesn't have the type of formula they need to keep these variants from coming up, from coming up which could eventually affect everybody. I mean, do we just want to wait until there's a variant that we really can't handle? And that puts us back to where we were or even even further in a, in a worse position than we were in before. And this goes to what you said, and I think you hit it on the head. This is so short sighted. It's not just greedy. It's short sighted. And this is the problem. And I see this so much in American, the American market right now is that we're trying to get quick dollars. And we've given away our manufacturing and we've given away all this other stuff to make the quick dollars, not seeing how that could affect us down the road. And this is exactly an, an example of that. You don't want to give it up because you want to maintain your patent. But now you got these variants popping up that, yeah, maybe they're profitable. And we're not going to say whether that's happening or not. We haven't you know, we haven't been in those meetings, but it's a possibility. And we know that these variants can keep coming up and keep causing prob problems for us. The more people are vaccinated, the better. That's the position that we've taken on our understanding of the science and everything else. It's a very short-sighted play, and it's something that marks American, the American market and has hurt us and is going to continue to hurt us unless we take a longer view and a more ethical view. I'll let you finish this off, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just urge, you know, and if folks have uh, the the argument, we certainly, like you said, want to hear that. Uh, but if, if you agree with this, I mean, I would urge people to reach out to your member of Congress, uh, hit up your senator um, and just talk about this, because, again, you're not listening to somebody who's like completely against uh, capitalism, actually support capitalism. I like public private partnership. I think that is what we saw is the success of that. This is not somebody who's against those things. This is this is like a friend coming alongside and saying, come on, bro, this is you're not doing right at this point. And we should be urging our federal government to do something uh, about this. And just to, you know, these are their friends, a lot of folks in government administration. These are, these are folks they know. And it's not to harm them is to protect us, our markets, our people, um, and it's so that we can be a good neighbor. So uh, if, if, you, if you disagree, certainly Justin already spoke to you. If you agree, maybe take a minute to shoot an email, pick up the phone, call a legislator, 
and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. I think we should uh, be leaning on these companies to release that formula. And maybe that's what we'll do from now on. Maybe this is something that we'll just turn into, and I'm, I'm just coming with, up with this on the spot, but I think it's a good idea. When you have a disagreement with us and you think you have a better argument than we've made, I would like you to get on the Patreon, shoot us a message. We'll be checking those every week. And if you have a good argument, if it sounds like it made sense, or at least that other people need to hear it, then we'll give you five minutes or something like that, uh, record something so you can plead your case on the Church Politics Podcast. So that's another thing that we're going to do. In addition to answering questions, we're going to, for folks that are on the Patreon, we're going to say, okay, we want to hear you out. If you make a good argument, we're going to play it to the people, even if we disagree with it. How about that? All right, we'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. This is, again, Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. Uh, I read an interesting article in uh, Politico not too long ago, and I wanted to share uh, that on the podcast and just kind of get your thoughts on this, Chris. Uh, Politico's Dan David Sider wrote an article last week about uh, some of the issues that Democrats are facing nationally. Uh, The problem was on display in the Virginia gubernatorial race, and we've already talked about that. But what's been discovered since then, largely through focus groups and polling, is even worse than expected, Chris. The problem cuts far deeper than the failings of Terry McAuliffe or President Biden's bad approval ratings. The Democratic Party's entire brand, based on this polling and based on these uh, focus groups, The entire brand is in a bad place. The article says that voters, when voters were asked about asked about the Democrats, they couldn't name that the anything that the Democrats had done, except a a few of them who uh, said that they had passed the infrastructure bill. They couldn't articulate what Democrats stand for. They also could not uh, say what they were what the Democrats were doing in Washington other than fighting. Now, that's a communications issue, but it might also be a substantive issue. Uh, And these were and the people they talked to. I want to be very clear about this, Chris. The people that they talked to uh, that I just gave you that information from. These were Biden voters. Now, Biden's approval rating, a measure which is closely tied to a party's performance in the midterms, has fallen below 43 percent, according to 538, uh, that 538 polling average. That's far worse than Barack Obama's favorability at the same point in his presidency prior to the Democrats' midterm wipeout in 2010. So they did terribly in 2010, and he's below where Obama was in 2010 before that wipeout. And, and it comes down to this, and I'm, I'm sure you know this. You've, you've heard it. It's, you know, it's the economy stupid. Hey, voters believe the economy is bad, and, and, no, and no amount of stats can change their minds at least in the short term. Uh, some of this research was done by a group, a center, uh, center group called Third Way. And they're saying that job numbers, wage numbers, and the number of people that have been put back to work are not moving people to believe that the economy is doing better. Part of the issue might be that people aren't feeling, you know, even though they got the checks early on, they're still not feeling a direct impact from some of some of these other policies. You know, there's there's a lot of different reasons that that folks would be feeling this way, but maybe it's still seeing that when you go to the store, they're still you know they're still hiring. Uh, maybe they feel like you know wages haven't gone up the way that they want to, and maybe even the Democrats, Chris, oversold what they were going to be able to do and really have underperformed. I think one of the things that you might point out is. If they're un, if they just pass the infrastructure and they're not able to pass the build back better stuff, then you don't get a lot of the stuff that you heard people would get during the campaign, right? And so they're not they're not receiving all those benefits they expected, 
even though Democrats run the White House, the Senate and Congress. Something has to be done. But this sounds pretty bad. I mean, if something drastic doesn't change drastically, then you're going to see, you know, you might see a very tough midterm. And it almost seems like there's a strategy of not having Biden out there too much. We know that there was some, somewhat of a strategy to kind of hide him and just let uh, really let Trump hang himself right during the campaign. And so they didn't have Biden out there a lot. It seems like they're continuing with that. But I don't think that's going to get them where they need to go. You can have, you know, because they're sending, you know, Buttigieg and all these other folks to go talk and have these conversations. They're not the president. And people want to hear the president. And when they don't, because those folks don't have the bully pulpit, you're not going to get the same effect. Chris, what do you think about the Democrat branding and maybe how they could change it for the better as a Democrat? You know, talk to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, it's it's a little bit funny uh, to see this. I think that the the very fact that national Democrats didn't start talking about this until pollsters and focus groups, uh, you know, happened in Virginia is actually a testament to the real problem in the Democratic Party is because this stuff, these are not secrets. Um, these are not new revelations. It, this is not stuff that folks would not have heard listening to the church politics podcast or, you know, uh, rising or breaking points or uh, any number of outlets where people are talking about this constantly. Uh, the fact that the Democratic Party has become way too much leaning into sort of uh, identity politics uh, and sort of, you know, what I call cultural liberalism. And, and and really have not done enough to actually make real concrete changes in the lives of people. I'll bring up this example, Justin, until something actually happens uh, at the at the federal level uh, in the midst of one of the greatest sort of social upheavals uh, that we have seen in a very, very long time of racial justice issues uh, after the murder of George Floyd. The response of the Democratic Party was to don kente cloth, go to the Capitol Rotunda, and take a knee. A beautiful picture, I guess, but no legislation. We won't talk to Tim Scott. We won't figure out how to get anything done on our own. We just expect people to vote for us because we put on kente cloth and took a knee in the Capitol Rotunda. And it, it doesn't work that way on justice issues. Uh, it doesn't work that way on economic issues. Um, and and so as as this has become the brand, the party has been captured by probably the two worst things that you can be captured by. At the same time, captured by sort of corporatist elites uh, and folks trying to make a lot of money at all costs uh, and captured at the same time by cultural uh, liberalism uh, that comes out of the university and you're trying to win over a population, Justin, where 60% of the people didn't go to college. Way more than 60% of the people, 99% of the people are not incredibly wealthy. And you've become the party of super co collegiate and incredibly wealthy people. Uh, and, and I would say that when it comes to what the Democrats are doing right now, what they did not see in the focus groups which they, I hope they tune into somewhere so they can really hear this, you're probably going to lose the House, probably going to lose the Senate in the midterms. I think what they're working on now uh, is being is staying out of control for a really long time uh, because this Build Back Better legislation, it already does not include all of the stuff that people were excited about when we first started talking about it. Most of that has already been cut out. It may even be worse for them if they pass it at this point than if they don't, because it seems to me just listening to how folks in the House have messaged since the vote when they pass in the House that the consensus is now to just pass this legislation, and then straight up lie about it, claim that is transformational when it's really just incremental. Um, and what I know about uh, doing that in Illinois Still today, Justin, nobody trusts any school funding scheme that you can possibly come up with. 
This is because in the 80s, which is, you know, a little bit of time ago now, but in the 80s, we brought in the lottery. We told everybody that the lottery was going to fix the school funding in the state of Illinois. Uh, But at the same time as that lottery money was going into the education fund, other monies were coming out of education back into general fund. And so it was almost a one-for-one swap, like not not exactly, but almost a one-for-one swap. Um, And so it really was not transformational like it was sold. And if you choose to lie to the public and tell them that you're changing the world and transforming their lives, and then two years, three years, four years down the line, people can see if their life is transformed. They'll know that their life is not transformed. Um, Middle-class people will see that their child care costs doubled instead of going down. The, the very poor who see their costs go down will see that their, their options for child care uh, went out the window. And by, by the time we're going up for in, in, in the run up to the presidential election, people will be hearing in the news a debate about extending the child tax credit when you just spent two years telling people that you already extended the child tax credit, but you didn't tell them that you only did it for a year. Right. So if Democrats choose right now to lean into this strategy of not doing it enough and then overselling it. I think that, that we might be setting up a thing where we can be out of power to house the Senate and the presidency for a long time. Because the last thing you want to do is lie to people and say that you just changed their lives and solved their problems. And then it turns out that you didn't. Yeah. And, you know, David Axelrod had an interesting quote that I thought was kind of deep. He said, look, and he was talking about Democrats. He was criticizing, you know, his own, own party. He said, look, Folks aren't necessarily even asking to be transformed. <laughs> They're asking to be helped. So all this talk about transformation is actually the wrong talking point because that ain't what people ask you to do. People ask you to help them and correct some correct certain things, not for all this huge transformation that you're always talking about. And Chris, you know how I get down, man. I mean, I'm really at at most a very, very lukewarm uh, Democrat. Uh, I vote for whoever the best candidate is, regardless of party, and really have been playing for a realignment. Uh, if, if if you could convince me it was effective, I would be in the Solidarity Party all day. I'd be in the Forward Party all day. I really could care less if Democrats fail. I just want good policy. So I have no interest in the Democratic Party succeeding just for the sake of succeeding. I want good part. I want good policy to succeed. And in as much as this this branding is a result of just focusing on the wrong things on focusing on as you you know as you pointed out these secular progressive uh social projects and social constructs that most of america is not even with you know uh, you know even with the polling a lot of folks just don't want to be seen uh, a certain way as unkind or whatever but a lot of the stuff that I, I could care less about what you're talking about and with these social all these different social projects that you're putting on are you really taking care of the people and I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. And it's really going to take leadership, Chris. And and that's why, you know, I'm glad you're running. But it's going to take leadership for people to come step up and say, no, we've got to do this right. And so when I see stuff about, yeah, they may run Buttigieg and Kamala together and that's the key. Y'all don't get it. You just you just don't get what's going on today. And that's not to say that the Republicans are getting it very well either. Right. I, even even after the win in Virginia, you saw from the, uh, re, you know, the National Republican Party, them saying stuff that was so far from the reason why they won, uh, you know, that it's just crazy. And then you see that, you know, Trump is, you know, if he wants it and is able, will likely be the candidate again. You just see we're in a, in a situation where we need some true leadership. We need some people to stand up and say what's to organize and to stay, say what's right. And then, you know, let the chips fall where they may. But but something's got to change. This is more than just a branding issue. This is more than just the voters. Because I saw someone talking about basically the voters are being unfair. The voters just don't understand how great the Democrats are. Give me a break. The voters are smarter than you think. You haven't done what you said you're going to do. And, you know, at some point it's going to catch up with you. But I'll, I'll let you close this out on this segment. Yeah, I, I think that. What you talked about in terms of realignment, because this segment we're talking about the Democratic Party because the article that we're talking about is about the Democratic Party, but neither party has really caught on to where I think the vast majority of the people in the United States are. 
it will take leadership at the uh, elected level. It, it is why I'm running, uh, but it's also going to take leadership from the grassroots. And I would just, again, urge folks that like this is the moment for organized people uh, to really lead the government. We talk about this a lot uh, and the and campaign is a, a huge part of our framework. Uh, and that's remember that elected officials serve the public, not the other way around. You've got the power of your vote and you've got the power of your voice. Uh, and it's, it's really time to start using both the power of voice and the power of the vote to push these parties uh, in the right direction. And if they won't go in the right direction, to push them out of the way. Uh, because it's really, this government really belongs to the the people and not to the handful of uh, Americans who gather themselves in Washington, D.C., elected officials, lobbyists, um, and that, that whole sort of cabal. Like, they don't own the government. We own the government. I just urge us that this is a moment for us uh, to, to own that power, and we can actually start moving things in a different direction. That's right. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, Well, you know, we have a very talented leadership council uh, with the Church Politics Podcast. Some folks who are out in culture, in the church, in politics, really doing great things. And so we like to highlight those folks every every now and then. Uh, One of those people is uh, Dr. Esau McCauley, who is a professor at at Whedon, an excellent writer. He actually writes for The New York Times. And he had a really strong article come out a couple days ago in The New York Times uh, and, and it's called I Grew Up Poor. How am I supposed to raise my middle class kids? Uh, really strong article. I would recommend that you, you go read it. And in this article, uh, Dr. McCauley uh, talks about uh, growing up poor, uh, not always having enough to eat, growing up in food deserts, things of that nature and having so much violence around him and, and how that that shaped him in, in many ways. He then goes on to say, he says, Uh, Two of our children uh, entered a private Christian school. We have obtained what many consider to be the American dream. What has, but he, you know, he says, I can't help but wonder what has been lost among all the things that we have gained. He goes on to say, I can tell my kids stories of growing up without enough to eat and moving from home to home because we couldn't afford to pay our rent. I can speak to them about having classmates killed. I can teach them about living in areas uh, defined by redlining and food deserts. But they're but they've never uh, had white bread, government cheese and fruit punch as steady parts of their diets. These sound like things experienced by a character in a play, not part of the life lived by their father. I cannot help believing that my children have lost something. The determination born of suffering. I wish I could give them that feeling. And I thought this was just an interesting article because I I know a lot of folks go through this same kind of uh, thought process. Now, I'm going to be straight up. I I did not grow up poor. I never missed a meal, but certainly had to deal with uh, my father's alcohol addiction, had to deal with uh, getting evicted from homes from time to time and and other things of that nature. 
and it's it, these are things that as of right now, my kids haven't had to deal with and, and hopefully won't have to deal with. But as I think about it in, in the toughest times and as I went through that, it actually made me stronger. It actually helped me build uh, character. And so I often wonder, are my kids building character? What what becomes of us when we don't have really just a, a whole lot of uh, things to overcome in our lives uh, when we, you know, when we, we have some things kind of easy. And I think even the Bible, you know, tells us that that prosperity can, can have a negative impact on us. Uh, it can blind us to certain things, not always, but it can make us feel uh, self-sufficient and it can even lure us into taking God for granted. And so when we talk about not having a lot of adversity, how adversity can actually be helpful and how adversity can make you stronger, right? That, that's biblical as well. What do we say as we raise our children with less adversity? And you never know what can happen. And we're not, we don't necessarily want adversity, right? Um, but but what does it say? And what, what do we do with that as parents? I know one of the answers that I've had is, you know, that's why my, my, my kids play football early on, because I think that's one of those things where they have to overcome mental, you know, you have to be mentally and physically tough and overcome some things to get there. And it, it it puts them into a level of adversity that they might not otherwise have. That's not the same as growing up poor, but it is something. Uh, Chris, what are your thoughts just on, you know, how you grew up and, and how you're raising your kids and, and what might be lost in that lack of adversity? Yeah. Can I first just say that uh, I love Esau so much. Esau is brilliant. Um and there's just a, a really well-written article. It's something that I actually talk about with friends all the time. I talk about with my mentors a lot, just this idea of, you know, our kids not having though that friction um, that I do think in a lot of ways served to sharpen me because we did grow up poor you know, my kids have, have never lived in the kind of neighborhoods uh, where I grew up. Uh, in fact, as I was reading the article, I thought about um, we were actually living in such a neighborhood. Uh, my wife and I do a ministry um, in that neighborhood when we found out that we were pregnant with our first daughter, our only daughter, our first child. And we made the decision to move, uh, you know, to a better neighborhood. So, you know, it's 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 true that they they don't have those experiences, and I just think about this. I don't necessarily uh, have the answers, and I, 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 that's what one of the things I love about Esau's article is that it, it really raises these questions thoughtfully. Um, I think it's something that we always have to think about, uh, like you alluded to in Proverbs thirty, where it, uh, it, it talks about you know, uh, give me neither poverty or riches, because if I'm too full. Uh, I'll forget the Lord. And if I'm too poor, I'll be tempted to sin and steal. But I do think about how do I get my kids to be sharp without the friction? Because you don't want them to come go out into the world with all of their edges rounded. You know, you, you want some sharpness there. Uh, I love the the, the idea of, of sports uh, to help do that. And I don't know, I'm, I'm with Esau, where the article is, uh, just prayerfully considering this question, really looking for the guidance uh, from the Holy Spirit, uh, a lot of conversations with mentors, uh, and even friends who are walking the same way, because I have a, a lot of friends who uh, who grew up in a, a much different station, I guess, uh, than the kids are currently uh, existing in. And so I talk about this question a lot. I don't know that I got... Uh, all of the answers. My kids are still very young. Um, but yeah, it, it sits there in front of you all the time. And I really, really appreciate yeah. uh, the way that Esau was able to articulate that. It's an open question, man. And I know both of us are kind of in that professional class. And I really, I'm going to be honest with you, man, I really disagree with a lot of the ways the professional class goes about raising their kids. I think they take a lot of things for granted. You almost get the feeling that the professional class doesn't feel like you need toughness, that you need, you almost feel like if I can protect my kids from everything, that'll be the best way to raise them. And that'll be the, you know, the, 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 the optimal way to raise them if I can just protect them from everything. And I think that's just so wrong. And I, and I tell so many of my friends, especially ones in the, in the, in the uh, professional class, 
you can't protect your kids from everything. Like you don't want to be this helicopter parent that's watching everything they do and making sure that they never feel any pain. They need that pain. And I know you're going to get sick of me telling you this, but that's why I offer a lot of my friends. I tell them, man, we have, you need to read the coddling of the American mind because it breaks it down so well, because I, I think it is, it's logical to think, man, I just want to protect them, make sure they get the best education. And you do want to make sure they get the best education and all that stuff. You don't want to put them in bad situations. But the more you protect them, the less they build up the ability to get through things themselves. And we never know in our society, we almost have this, we, 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 we take for granted that our society is always going to be a place where there isn't as much violence or where they're not going to need to be tough or they're not going to need to be physically and emotionally and mentally tough in ways that people in other countries are. But you don't know that. You don't know that you're going to live in, in luxury like this for so long. And so sometimes boys do need a warrior spirit. How do they get that without going out and acting out and doing things, tearing up the neighborhood and things like that? We have to think through it a little more because I think especially, again, in the professional class, there are some assumptions that I think are very wrong. And I think sometimes the working class gets that better, that particular issue better than the professional class does. And, and I've been really trying to preach that to a lot of my friends who are probably sick of it, but but it's real. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's very, very real. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for a community, you know, Justin, yourself included, where we, we do talk about this. I, I'm thinking about the conversation we were having last time I was in Atlanta, um, and Esau wasn't even there, but it's like he was there uh, when he wrote this article. Uh, but I think it's very, very important um, that he uh, is able to put this type of thing in the New York Times, where folks in the professional class will see it, because I do think there are too many of us who are not asking ourselves these questions. Um, and if we're not asking ourselves the question, then almost certainly uh, we will allow our kids sort of entire childhood to go by and, and, and not even have a thought toward how do I build in some of that grit? Um, and I'm, again, like you said, I'm not trying to, you know, send my kids over it, like have weekends in Inglewood or whatever, um, you know, uh, unsupervised, but it's a, it's a, a really important question. Maybe one day, cause I think somebody in my life who really has a good beat on this is actually my wife. I learn a lot from her. Maybe one day we'll put her on the podcast to talk Let's about do this. It. But Let's do um, it. yeah, and she preaches the coddling of the American mind too. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I think it's so important though that he wrote this article because more of us, uh, you know, as you say, in the professional class, I need to be asking the question. I I, I couldn't agree more, brother. Man, that was a really good discussion. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that folks are going to get on that Patreon, send us some messages and, and make their case on some of the stuff we talked about earlier. This is a great opportunity. We, we really do want to interact with you, you all more. And we want to make sure that we're covering different arguments because we, you know, we uh, try to be as objective as we can be, but we still take positions. And so if there's a position that goes against ours or even, maybe you might even convince us from time to time, we're open to that because we're not. Uh, we're trying to get to the truth. We're not just trying to put our opinions out there. So as always, Ann Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Wow. I say kingdom, come to me, rest in me, kingdom. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.